You're listening to The Pivot, brought to you by Globally News, where we discuss the leaders, states, networks, ideologies and technologies that are reshaping the world order. Visit our website at globally.news. That's globely.news. Welcome to episode three of The Pivot. I'm Arif Rafiq, your host. India's general elections come to a close this week with results scheduled to be announced on Thursday. These are the world's largest democratic exercises with over 600 million ballots having been cast in an election divided into seven phases over the course of a month. Turnout has neared 70% and could break a record high. Beneath these impressive numbers, however, lie some dark and troubling trends. The ruling Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janta Party, or BJP, has campaigned on an explicitly anti-Muslim platform. In the lead-up to the general elections, the BJP government released Hindu extremists part of a terror network responsible for the deaths of over 100 Muslims. Not only did the BJP facilitate the release of these suspected terrorists, it also nominated one of them as a parliamentary candidate. Senior BJP officials have also pledged to expel from India so-called Muslim infiltrators, whom they've compared to termites. Now, the BJP is expected to at the very least retain a plurality of seats in the lower house of parliament and form a coalition government. It could also conceivably win a majority again. Few observers predict a BJP defeat. The potential consequences for India of continued BJP rule are immense. Many Indian observers see another term for Prime Minister Narendra Modi and the BJP as an existential threat to the secular pluralist edifice that surrounds the Indian system of governance. This ugly form of Hindu nationalism, built upon the demonization of Muslims, is integral to Modi's project of creating a so-called new India. And so as India's election results are set to be announced, we're going to be taking a step back and look at who is Narendra Modi. What exactly is this new India? envisioned by him? What are the ideas and networks behind it? And what are the implications going forward for India and beyond? To discuss all this, we'll be joined by two very esteemed guests, Rana Ayub, an Indian investigative journalist, and Audrey Trushke, a professor of South Asian history at Rutgers University. So to understand what is Narendra Modi's project of creating a new India, it's first important to understand who is Mr. Modi himself. And this is key because for his supporters, Modi is a pure Hindu. Hindu, and the personal manifestation of this new India that is emerging. And in the eyes of Modi's supporters, his chief political rival, Rahul Gandhi of the Congress Party, is a symbol of the old India that must be defeated. The contrast between the two men, both real and imagined, are profound. Rahul Gandhi is the great-grandson of India's first Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, the grandson of its third Prime Minister, Indira Gandhi, and the son of its sixth Prime Minister, Rajiv Gandhi. So it's clear Rahul inherited a political mantle, but he's also been shaped by forces emanating from outside India. He was educated at Harvard and Cambridge and worked in management consulting, and his mother is an Italian born Catholic. In contrast, Modi comes from humble origins. Both of his parents were Hindu, and his purported devotion to the Hindu religion and the political ideology of Hindu nationalism or Hindutva are his most defining features. For most of his adult life, Modi was a worker for the Rastriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, or RSS. The RSS, as we mentioned in a previous podcast, is a Hindu nationalist organization founded in the 1920s, influenced by European fascism. Now, until he joined the RSS, Modi purported to have sought a monastic life 
abandoning but never divorcing his child bride. Even after joining the RSS, Modi presented himself as a workhorse who renounced worldly needs. He appears to have been singularly devoted to the RSS, rising up within its ranks in his home state of Gujarat and then joining its political affiliate, the BJP, in the mid-1980s. Now while it's unclear whether Modi actually graduated from college, what is clear is that it's the RSS that shaped his outlook on politics and society. The RSS is the chief ideological group in a family of Hindu nationalist organizations known as the Sangh Parivar. It feeds the BJP with political ideas and workers. The goal of the RSS, as envisioned by its founding ideologue, V.D. Savarkar, is to transform the multi-confessional India into a Hindu Rashtra or Hindu nation. Savarkar proclaimed India to be the land of the Hindus and said that Christians and Muslims must pay allegiance to Hindu symbols. He described Muslims as fifth columnists whose loyalty was to Constantinople and Mecca. Alongside its toxic ideas, the RSS has a long track record of involvement in violence. Nathuram Godse, a man described as a former member of the RSS, assassinated Mahatma Gandhi in 1948 claiming that he had favored Muslims over Hindus. Over the decades, the BJP and RSS have been consistent in their chief demands. These include building a Hindu temple on the site of a 400-year-old mosque, removing separate personal family laws for Muslims, and abolishing autonomy for the disputed region of Kashmir. These groups and affiliated entities have incited riots targeting Muslim minorities, including in 1992, when they destroyed the aforementioned mosque, which is known as the Babri Masjid, or mosque. So, the RSS is a pretty extreme organization. Its main targets have been Indian Muslims and the secular foundations of India. This is Modi's political pedigree. This is his ideology. Now, in 2001, Modi was nominated as the chief minister of the state of Gujarat. The next year, over a thousand Muslims were killed by Hindu extremist mobs who were mobilized after an attack on a train carrying Hindu pilgrims. Modi not only did little to prevent the violence, he more or less legitimized it. He also demeaned the Muslim victims, whom he compared to puppies getting run over by a car. And then he rode the wave of Hindu anger to elect victory soon after the riots. The pogroms left hundreds of thousands of Muslims in displacement camps, and today, the state of Gujarat remains segregated along religious lines. The wounds of violence have never healed, and Modi quite simply never even tried. Now, though the pogroms were a political boon to Modi in the state of Gujarat, they initially made him a pariah, nationally and internationally. In 2005, Modi was denied a U.S. visa because of credible evidence that the state apparatus under its control facilitated these anti-Muslim pogroms. Modi has sought to suppress investigations into his role in the violence. One of those investigations has surrounded the case of Asan Jafri, an elderly Muslim politician. Amid the violence, Jafri called Modi for help as Hindu rioters surrounded his home. Instead of coming to his aid, Modi taunted the man and expressed surprise that he was still alive. Minutes later, Joffrey was cut into pieces. Joffrey's widow has since been campaigning for justice for her late husband and her lawyer, Tista Settlevad, who has been amassing evidence implicating Modi in the riots, has been hounded by the Modi government and declared a national security threat. Since the riots, Modi has cast himself as a pro-business, anti-corruption politician. As chief minister, he hosted a bi-annual business summit known as Vibrant Gujarat. He began to be feeded by leaders of the US business and Indian American communities. 
some influential political organizations, including the American Jewish Committee, began to see him as a potential strong partner for America and Israel against common Muslim foes. Now, many experts in the West presented Modi's pro-business image as his 2.0 version. They said he had grown past divisive politics. But for his supporters back home, Modi's ideology of Hindu supremacism and his supposedly pro-business policies were not mutually exclusive. They were two sides of the same coin. For them, this was the full Modi package. This was the Gujarat model. Here's Indian journalist Rana Ayub, who investigated the Gujarat riots, describing the two sides of the Gujarat model. Term that I used in my book, it's called corporate Hindutva, which which is something that Modi has mastered over the years since he was a provincial minister of Gujarat. That on one hand you will sideline the Muslim community, you will ensure that they live in ghettos, that you will ensure that there are there are, there's a riot after riot in the city. Muslims will be killed in extrajudicial murders, where uh, where you will where they will create this entire hype of Narendra Modi under attack from alleged Islamic terrorists, and it turns out that the people who were killed in extrajudicial murders were never terrorists but innocent Muslims. So he created he created this entire hype of this Hindu leader who is under attack from Islamists. So on one hand, there, there are riots and extrajudicial murders of Muslims. Muslims are not included in, in, in the government sectors. They are not included in the government services. They are forced to live in slums. They're, those who were affected during the Gujarat riots still live in relief camps. On the other hand, Mr. Modi had used to have this annual affair in Gujarat called Vibrant Gujarat, wherein uh, every day there would be a PR campaign where newspapers would be told that Mr. Modi is signing a memorandum of understanding or MOU with, with top corporate organizations from China and UK and USA and that he's the most successful minister, he has the most successful business plan for India and Gujarat model should be basically, you know, it should it is something that should be realized all over the country. The entire Vibrant Gujarat model has was busted way back when was when we you know when there were many investigative reports that none of the memorandum of understanding that Mr Modi used to speak about ever materialized it was only a lot of myth and hype and a lot of PR campaign when Mr. Modi used to get some of the biggest actors from Bollywood to endorse it. The same mirage that he created, the same facade that of, of development that he created that, oh, I have brought in great development in Gujarat. I mean, Gujarat has always been a developed state. So there was nothing that Mr. Modi did phenomenally in the state. In 2014, Narendra Modi became Prime Minister of India, a feat that would have been unthinkable a decade earlier. Ascending alongside Modi was his right-hand man his conciliary, Amit Shah. Amit Shah is now the president of the BJP. He had previously served as the top security official in Gujarat. He's been key to enabling the rehabilitation of Modi's image, all the while maintaining the two sides of the Gujarat model. Here's Rana Ayub again on the powerful ties between Modi and Shah. Well, Modi is like Amit Shah's shadow and he has been his shadow since the 90s when both were members of the RSS. Modi found an ally in Amit Shah because he saw similar aspects similar opportunism in Amit Shah. Here, here was a man who could actually get in the mafia involved, getting people from the underworld involved for his dirty work. Amit Shah was a man who was involved in, in a corporate banking fraud in Gujarat, and one of the biggest corporate banking frauds in the state. He was somebody who could get work, the dirty work done, and while Narendra Modi could come out clean. So while when Mr. Amit Shah, so Mr. Amit Shah was arrested in 2014 following an expose that I did back then when I published his call records and, and on internal documents.
arguments. I remember at that point of time, questions were raised that if Amit Shah, who was the Home Minister of that time in Gujarat, who was held for the extrajudicial murders, if he was if he was held accountable, why not Modi, under whom Amit Shah served, because the Home Ministry was also uh, looked after by the Chief Minister. But again, Mr. Amit Shah took the fall for Modi. He is that kind of man who will take the fall for his leader, who will run parallel to the leadership, and he will do the groundwork. He, Mr. Modi, is somebody who does the speeches, who wears good clothes, who wears, who wears this brand called Jade Blue, who will wear Versace or Armani and go on stage, who will practice a speech in front of the mirror, who will have his PR gurus, while Amit Shah will do the election maneuvering. He is the one who will go from booth to booth. He will. He's the one who knows how to manipulate. He's the one who knows how to deflect. Who's, he's the one who knows how to make coalitions. In Gujarat, he was infamous for using the police force in eliminating opponents. When I'm saying eliminating, it's not necessarily murdering them, but ensuring uh, that they become irrelevant. So he's been a master at that game. And when the Supreme Court, when the CBI submitted its chart sheet against Mr. Amit Shah, who's now the second in command in India, the chart sheet called him an extortionist and, and a leader who abetted and aided the rape and murder and conspiracy. But today, that's uh, Mr. Um, Mr. Amit Shah stands clean of that case. And that's what Mr. Modi does for him. So whatever power Mr. Modi enjoys, that a big contribution of that power is, is rests in the hands of Amit Shah. The dirty work, the groundwork is done by Mr. Amit Shah. Uh, Modi enjoys the popularity. But but at this point of time, Mr. Mr. Shah is as powerful as Mr. Modi. And till such time that Mr. Modi is in power, Mr. Amit Shah will remain equally relevant. There are suggestions that he could take over from Mr. Modi as the next prime minister, as somebody who was once jailed by the Supreme Court, as somebody who was asked to remain out of out of limits of Gujarat. There is a uh, there is a term there is a term in here in India it's called tadi par, which is basically used for criminals. If somebody like that becomes a prime minister of India. Yeah, we would not be very surprised but that's how important he is he is to Narendra Modi he's a shadow and Modi cannot operate without Amit Shah's help he has been shielding him since since his three terms as chief minister in Gujarat and he's now been shielding his prime ministerial term and he's been now helping him secure another term in the country now under the five-year tenure of Prime Minister Modi India has witnessed an upsurge in hate crimes and violence targeting Muslims the so-called untouchables or Dalits as well as other minorities including Christians meanwhile the Indian media has taken a backseat and has largely been restrained in its criticism of Modi, who has never fielded a question in a single press conference during his tenure as Prime Minister. Modi's avoidance of the press, aside from interviews with news channels connected to or sympathetic with his political party, is due in part to the collapse of the myth of Modi as an economic reformer, the very narrative that was key to sanitizing his public image, especially in the outside world. During Modi's tenure, India has remained as one of the world's fastest growing large economies, growing at a rate of around 7.5%. But that's only if official data is to be believed. Beneath the surface, there are signs of an underperforming economy. Since 2016, the Indian economy has actually shed jobs, and consumption is now in decline. Small businesses and the poor have been hit hard by two major components of Modi's economic agenda, a failed program to remove fake currency from circulation, known as demonetization, and a value-added tax imposed in 2017. The discrepancy between top-level growth figures and the underlying economic data has resulted in some experts, including 
a former governor of the state bank questioning the integrity of official data produced by the Modi government. Now, what Modi has been able to achieve is the further polarization of Indian society along religious lines. Indian political culture is increasingly intolerant and violent, and its media and politics is centered around questioning the loyalty of Muslims and presenting them as fifth columnists. Love Jihad is for real. The NIA tells the Supreme Court says there is a pattern to conversion of Hindu girls to Islam. Lured, converted and packed off to Syria. First ever TV expose of Love Jihad on Republic TV. Five days now since a woman was thrashed inside a police van all because she was meet meeting a Muslim man, her alleged boyfriend in Meerut. The two were targeted by suspected BHP workers as well as so far no arrests have been made. BJP MP Vinay Katyar seems to be making a habit of hateful remark after hateful remark. What's more, he seems to be getting away with this unending tirade that he seems to have launched against Muslims in India. This time he says Muslims should not even be living in this country. They should go to Pakistan or Bangladesh. Let's then come to the central prescription in your article published in DNA in July. You write, and I'm going to quote, if any Muslim acknowledges his or her Hindu legacy, then we Hindus can accept him or her. Others who refuse to acknowledge this can remain in India but should not have voting rights. That's now, India has been typically associated with secularism and pluralism, and there's much truth in all that. The Constitution of India identifies the country as a secular democratic republic, and India has had numerous Muslim presidents. But the reality is that the country was born of a bloody partition along religious lines, and those divisions never fully healed. In fact, virtually every single decade since partition has witnessed pogroms targeting ethnic and religious minorities, and conditions for them have worsened. The secular system of India was very much the brainchild of Jawaharlal Nehru, the country's first prime minister. But today, Nehru is increasingly a reviled figure in India. And though he and his party, the Indian National Congress, led the country's independence movement, today they are lambasted for being apologists for Muslims and so-called traitors. The push to create a new India is very much centered on dismantling the secular system and ethos put into place by Nehru. It rages against history and its prime target is the Indian Muslim. Here is Rana Ayub again. From the day Mr. Modi assumed power in May 2014, I think his agenda was very clear. In the first year itself, we had the first lynching of a Muslim in the name of allegedly consuming beef. Uh, and the legislators, instead of asking justice, honored the people who lynched the person. And from, and from that time on, from 2014-2015, we have had intellectuals, rationalists, murdered. Uh, some of the leading intellectuals have returned their awards because of an intolerant culture that Mr. Modi has unleashed in the country. Hate crime in India is at, is at an all-time high. Uh, very recently, Mr. Modi has given ticket, election ticket, and endorsed the candidature of a terror accused who has been accused of at least four terror cases in India, which involves the killing of at least 200 Muslims. And she has been charged in the case. It's not just allegation. She has been charged in the case. Here's a woman whose candidature Mr. Modi has endorsed and she's the star campaigner. So this is the new India which India is witnessing right now where the Indian Muslim, the Indian lower caste is being othered every day where the Indian Muslim has been demonized, where the Indian Muslim has been constructed as the enemy. One must understand that Mr. Narendra Modi comes from the right wing Gashtiya Swayam Sayaksam or the right wing organization called the RSS whose 
prime agenda i mean the agenda of kulwalkar was to basically ensure that muslims and christians and dalits in india remain as second class citizens so mr modi instead of instead of you know bring us or into the new india is actually realizing the dream of the rss of converting muslims and dalits and the lower caste into second class citizens and that's what that's what we are staring at in 2019 it it looks very likely that mr modi could return to power in 2019 if this was what 2014 looked like i think 2019 and and the way forward does not look very bright for india so as rana said the push for a new india actually has its eye on the past and not just in the realization of an early 20th century ideology but also in the redressing of grievances from an imagined past that goes back centuries not a week goes by in india without an indian politician mentioning an ancient battle or a historical leader with the goal to frame hindu muslim rivalry and hindu victimhood as a feature of india's past and present they consistently diminish the role of india's muslims and the congress party in the country's independence movement here is rana ayub again i remember when mr modi was in south africa on his official visit and the first thing that he said when he you know when he opened the speech in johannesburg or it was i think it was in durban he spoke of freedom fighters like mohammad kachalia from india who had played a significant struggle in the freedom struggle of, of south africa and uh, and then he went to rwanda and he and he he, he donated cows and at the same time back in india there were two lynchings that happened and his own civil aviation minister galanded a person you know who was accused of lynching uh, muslims so there is a hypocrisy when mr modi is is on an international platform whether it is madison square or mr modi is in london or mr modi is meeting international leaders he espouses he talks speaks about nelson mandela he speaks about gandhi but back home every day his his party the bjp uh, demonizes leaders like nehru and gandhi there are members of the hindu right wing who symbolically shoot Gandhi again you know like you know, reenact his assassination these are members of the far right and this is not very different from the ideology that that B- Modi is BJP is practicing in fact i wrote a recent article that he is a prodigal son of Golwalkar who was the who was basically one of the founders of the RSS this entire idea of the hindu victimhood at this point of time muslims in india are 14% and hindus are roughly around 80% of the indian population but you still have instilled this hindu victimhood that you know muslims in india will will snatch away from you what is rightfully yours and that is something that has been the ideology of the rss during the freedom struggle some of some of the iconic rss leaders which 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 who are worshiped like savarkar i mean um, savarkar's bust is there is present in the indian parliament and who mr modi considers his mentor actually aided the british government well, the one of the and one of the key key purposes was to defeat muslims you see the role of the rss during the freedom movement well they speak about nationalism right now it stands in complete contradiction of what they were doing during the freedom movement and since mr modi has come to power there is an oblit- uh, they are trying to obliterate history in the sense that we have freedom fighters like maulana azad we have freedom fighters like the ali brothers whose mention has been completely erased from history mughal rulers like akbar shah jahan who gave us the taj mahal i mean some of the most iconic monuments in india are built 
by the Mughals. But every day you have the provincial leader of uh, of Uttar Pradesh, who is one of Mr. Modi's key ministers, Yogi Adityanath, talking about talking about demolishing the Taj Mahal. It's not very different from the BJP, which demolished the Babri Masjid in 1992. The ideology is the same to demolish all signs of Islamic presence, which is not about Islam but multiculturalism. But there there is this insecurity. There is this insecurity in the Hindu right wing, which basically cannot tolerate any visible signs of Muslim presence, Muslim cultural presence. It is also ironic that the Prime Minister of India gives his annual speech from the Red Fort. It is ironic that you know when when foreign dignitaries visit India, they visit the Taj Mahal and all the and all the monuments which were made by the Mughals. But on everyday basis, Mughals are being demonized in India. The reason being because Mughals have Muslim names and Mughals and we also it's it's an Islamic history. It is it is it's also a very hypo, the the right wing has also been very hypocritical. You know they want to hate Muslims, but as long as it brings them the revenues, they have no issues with it. I mean you certainly know they're not going to demolish the Taj Mahal, but you are catering to your to your base to your ma, to your mass base which believes that there is a Shiv temple below a myth that was created by the Hindu right wing. Below the Taj Mahal, so you keep kind of stoking this communal flame time and again, and and Modi, a lot of this, you know, the business and the industrialists in India saw him as a visionary leader. I mean, no, he's just regressed more than any other leader in 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 the BJP's own leadership between an Advani and Vajpayee to Modi. I think India has regressed at least twenty years behind, and it is going more towards Golwalkar's Hindu Rashtra as opposed to a Vajpayee. who advocated for peace between India and Pakistan. So Prime Minister Modi himself has often spoken of how India is now attempting to overcome 1000 years of servitude. And these are not Modi's original thoughts. When he refers to 1000 years of servitude of Hindus being under the heel of Muslim rulers, he's literally quoting the Hindutva extremist Golwalkar of the RSS. These are the ideas of the RSS. Now historian Audrey Trushky of Rutgers University says the Hindu nationalist view of history is quite quite simply imaginary and wrong. The Hindu nationalist view of the past is mythological by and large. It is not based on serious history. When when Prime Minister Modi talks about a thousand years of servitude, he is referring more or less to what what we often call Indo-Muslim rule, which is not really a thousand years, more like 600 years, but you know, we'll, we'll let the math point go, I suppose. You know, the the real issue here is that is the assumption of servitude, right? The assumption that you have big bad muslim guys coming in from outside of india and enslaving a a hindu majority population that's not what happened muslims did come in from outside of india they invaded not india because india did not exist as a political unity in this period they invaded specific kingdoms primarily in north india and took them over uh, muslims never controlled all of the indian subcontinent incidentally right they were sort of scattered here and there but there were always hindus ruling as well sometimes under muslim rulers sometimes beside them but the, you know the real key here is that there was not an enslavement and you know we know that through a variety of ways but one way that we know that is sort of by how people reacted at the time you don't have a bunch of sources written by hindus throughout this period saying oh these big bad muslim guys are coming in they're enslaving us it's all terrible on the contrary mo- many sources by hindus from this period talk about their active participation in muslim led forms of government many hindus worked for the moguls and for other muslim empires and actually did pretty well under them i will i'm 
emphasize that this was a pre-modern world. And so ideas about violence and rights and things like that sort of go with the time, right? There is no concept of individual liberty, you know, as we understand it today. Uh, and all rulers of this period, whether Hindu, Muslim, or any other religion, had absolutely no problem with the use of massive amounts of state violence. That is fairly consistent across the pre-modern world. But it was not a sort of Hindu-Muslim conflict. The Hindu-Muslim conflict bit, that, that is a modern formulation, and it serves modern political needs, but it tells us nothing about actual Indian history. Now, one of the core problems with trying to frame medieval disputes as between Hindus and Muslims is that it's ahistorical. For one, the Hindu identity quite simply just did not exist until the modern era. Here's Audrey Trushke again. So identity is incredibly complicated, sort of gloriously complicated for, for pre-modern India. And for it, it works out a little bit differently for Hindus and Muslims. Starting with Hindus, Hindus did not refer to themselves self-referentially as Hindus in the pre-modern era hardly at all. The Hindu is not a Sanskrit word. Uh, this is originally used by outsiders, originally by Arabs, later by Persians, and it was originally a geographical term. It meant people within India, not Hindus as we understand it today. Hinduism as a word is even newer. That dates to the 18th century at the absolute earliest. So pre-modern Hindus, Hindu in quotation marks, they referred to themselves by a whole range of markers. Sometimes they talked about their, their caste, uh, their jati. Sometimes they referred to their varna, right? Their social class, Brahmin, Kshatriya, so forth. Sometimes they talk about the god that they worship, right? What we would call Vaishnavites, worshippers of Vishnu versus Shaivites, worshippers of Shiva, so on and so forth. But oftentimes they didn't really talk about their religious identities so much. Sometimes they'll talk about where they're from. I'm reading a, a poet right now writing in Sanskrit in, in the 16th century, and he keeps talking about how he's from South India. That's his big thing. He doesn't mention that he's Hindu, but he's South Indian. Muslims do refer to themselves as Muslims, and they, and they use sort of, often Muslim authors will use language that is sort of Islamic in, in, its, in its bent and in its assumptions. But you take an empire like the Mughals, most of the time, they're not underscoring their Muslim identity. Rather, they mainly underscored their Timurid identity, um, and they called themselves Timurid, Timuria. Uh, they would actually be horrified to know that we today refer to them as Mughals. They do trace their lineage on one side of the family back to the Mongols, but that was sort of the, the worst side of the family, the Timurids. That, that was the, the high class stuff for them. So again, you know, you're looking at you're looking at lineages and things like that rather than an emphasis on religious identity. The modern idea of what it means to be Hindu, of what Hindu even is, what, what, what Hinduness is, what Hinduism is, that that is a distinctively modern thing. And that is not to say that there are not strands that go back to the past and roots that go all the way back. But I would point out that Hinduism has been a notably dynamic tradition. It has changed a lot and had many different incarnations. And that is arguably one of its greatest strengths that has enabled it to survive over, you know, thousands of years of history. You know, even in that formulation, I use Hinduism to talk about something thousands of years ago, even though it's an anachronistic term. I'm okay with vocabulary slippage like that. Uh, the problem comes when we try to straightjacket what, what it means to be Hindu and who can be Hindu. Um, and that's, that's something that Hindu nationalism is sort of going, going at strong right now. And that is a project that builds very strongly and quite directly on British colonial efforts rather than 
earlier, more sort of changeable versions of Hinduism. Now, both Rana Ayub and Audrey Trushke have received quite a bit of a backlash over the years for not towing the Hindutva line in their professional work. For Rana Ayub, the backlash has been especially severe because she's not only a woman living in India, she's also a Muslim woman living in India. The new India has made me a Muslim journalist. The other day, an Indian liberal actually wrote a piece in The Nation and he was actually, he wanted to quote something from my book, Gujarat Files, and he called, he referred to me as Indian Muslim journalist Rana Ayub. So that's what I've become, whether it is for liberals or for the right, because when the target of, of hate in this country is are the Muslims of this country, you will speak about them. And when you see a section of, of, of journalists remaining silent on it, and you think it's your moral moral responsibility to, to be louder than, than the others. I have been at the receiving end of this government trolling, and not just trolling, actually, offline hate too, since I got Mr. Amish arrested in 2010. Uh, and then I went undercover for eight months, posing as an American Film Institute conservatory student and, and exposing the government and how my book was sent and I had to self-publish and I have I mean I, I get death threats I get death threats when I'm on news channels I mean I get messages saying we know which studio you are in you step down and we'll show what you know what we can do to you my friend Gauri Lankesh who translated my book Gujarat Files in a regional language within three weeks of publication of the book in the regional language she was shot dead at one point of time uh, I got uh, copies of my book which are burned and charred with drops of blood on them I received them at my home I filed a police complaint and the cops gave me a license for a revolver and I said I can't be going around shooting people willy-nilly I mean there's nothing that the government has really done last year they morphed my image on a porn video and it went viral across the country my my number was doxxed my address was doxxed people sent me whatsapp messages dirty messages the, the porn video was all over uh, my, my social media my life was made miserable I went through palpitations I was admitted in hospital I've gone through nervous breakdowns, whether it was to publish Gujarat Files, my self-published book, or whether it was it's it's been to face this government. That to the extent that for the first time, six UN special reporters wrote to an Indian government in an individual case, and the Indian government is yet to reply to the UN. So it's been it's been rather difficult for me uh, in the last four years because a lot of my mainstream friends from the Indian journalism fraternity, uh, that they're, they're very dear friends of mine, would not associate would not like to associate with me or publish my pieces because they think I do not mince my words and I need to be a little more diplomatic when I'm writing. I don't know how do, how do journalists do that. And that's the difference between Trump's India and Modi, uh, Trump's America and Modi's India that we have frustrated even before we were asked to bend. But I believe when history is being recorded and, and things are being written about India, journalists like us, and I'm not the only one, there are many unsung journalists in India who are who are doing this unpopular journalism and we and history will deal with us in a perhaps kinder and more objective manner. So yes, it's it's, it's just it, and I and I anticipate it, it's going, only going to get worse for journalists like me. But um, it, this is also the truth about India that yes, there, there is a great deal of hate and yes, a majority of this country is getting polarized. But each time the Indian Muslim has been targeted, there has always been the people who have come to protect their rights, their, their, their democratic rights have been Hindu activists, and Hindu lawyers and Hindu politicians, Hindu journalists. But that's the beauty of India. And I, I hope and I wish that is retained uh, in the years to come. I hope these are not just those symbolic voices. Uh, but yes, that's also another truth of this country. And that's the reason why people like me still remain op optimistic, optimistic about the future of this country at, 
you know, <laughs> on some days. Now, remember, Audrey Trushke is a historian based in the United States, but she's become the target of right-wing mobs in India. And the abuse and threats directed at her began after she published a book on the medieval Mughal emperor, Aurangzeb, who is abhorred by Hindutva extremists. Trusky does not live in India, but at times when she does visit the country to conduct scholarly work or take part in academic discussions, her own security has been at risk. And thanks to social media, her detractors are able to target her regularly through troll mobs. I have received a, a, a shocking amount of hate mail and hateful vitriol directed at me, particularly on social media, chiefly on, on Twitter. The, the hate, the sort of hate mail and hate tweets came pretty hot and heavy for the first year and a half after my Aurangzeb book came out. For that 18-month period of time, every single day, I had multiple hate tweets and, you know, sort of directed at me. At, at its worst, I would get hundreds every hour. You know, most of its language, much of it is misogynist language, specifically anti-woman -anti stuff, um, I, but it also included death threats, rape threats, threats against my family, so on and, and so forth. Most of the hate, as far as I can tell, came from people within in India, but the Hindu right is also pretty strong in the United States. I live in New Jersey, which is ground zero for Hindu nationalists here in America. So some of that hate was sort of coming locally for, for me. I do think that there is something very, very unique, but not unique in a good way about the sort of Indian context here. When I have colleagues who do not normally work on India, but then do something comparatively with India or write a blog post on India, they often comment on this, that, you know, you can talk about China, Brazil, whatever, it's all fine. But then you say one thing on India and suddenly it's as if the world explodes back at you. That there is this emphasis on online discourse and a sort of strong dose of vitriol in that online discourse when it, when it comes to topics concerning India. That said, I do not live in India. And in this sense, someone like Rana is the real hero here. Like she is, she and people like her, they are the ones putting themselves and their families and their lives on the line and sort of feeling the heat in a much more intense way than, than I am halfway across the world. And frankly, that is part of the reason that I continue to speak up is that every day that goes by, the price is higher for people within India to speak up against uh, against Hindu nationalism and various other things going on. And I have, I have a platform and I have a position of power and privilege in part because I am not based in India. And I feel like I should use that for, for the common good. For me, the, the real effects of this, uh, you know, beyond the sort of, you know, mental issues of dealing with with people hating you all the time the real effects really just come up when I go to India and you know I think that there are there's always questions about whether I will get a visa that's that's one thing and that is important for my work to be able to go to South Asia there are also security concerns now I often need armed security at my talks in India uh, which is I, I I hope that I never get used to this I think it is patently absurd that a trained professor requires a guy with a machine gun in order to speak about literally ancient history, right? That, that that should never happen. I've also had, on one occasion, I've had a talk canceled in India uh, due to protest by an, an extreme Hindu nationalist sort of youth, youth, youth wing group. 
Um, and that was in Hyderabad. I was actually told by the Hyderabad police to not even enter the city because they would not guarantee my safety. You know, I mean, I set out to work on what I thought were fairly esoteric, obscure topics, you know, working on the non-West in the United States. I had no idea that this is where it would end up. You know, the silver lining to the dark clouds is that I get the opportunity to be relevant. And historians do not always get that opportunity. But I think that the the price of entry for being a public intellectual and, and talking beyond an academic audience about Indian history is a little bit high right now. No one, no one should be subject to, to hate mail and, and require armed security just for doing this. Now, both Rana Ayub and Audrey Trushke see the changes unleashed by Modi as generational. Rana Ayub says she wouldn't be surprised if Modi is succeeded by someone more extreme. In some ways, Modi is also reflective of where India stands right now. There is an, a communal element in India, which was which is always there. Uh, you know, you just needed to kind of scratch the veneer to, to see it, to see its existence. There are so many closer bigots amongst us, and that's where I, I think the RSS played a role about this Hindu victimhood, where Muslims were always seen as the aggressors who rightfully belonged in Pakistan, and post-partition they should have been given a secondary status, and that's something I think a majority or at least a good majority of Indians who believed in the right-wing ideology believed to be the truth. So when Mr. Modi came to power, he knew that this is the truth which which people do not want to speak. You would hear them on WhatsApp groups, but this is not something that is being spoken. He has kind of legitimized these conversations in, in, in the Indian narrative. Earlier, what was being spoken of in whispers that Indian that you know Indian Muslims should belong in Pakistan. If not, then they should hear respect the Indian Hindu values are now being legitimized on a daily basis. And and we have moved beyond dog whistles. So earlier in 2014, we often used the term dog whistle in India, that, you know, Modi is practicing this dog whistle politics where he does this. But now it's it's very, it's, it's no more subtle. It's not dog whistle. It's in your face. It's, it's, it's now being propagated and unleashed from the top. And, and the Indian middle class seems to find this Times now and the Republic very liberating because they have been sold the idea that channels like NDTV for that matter, who have, you know, who are channels who have, who have still maintained standards of news and integrity. When you are when you are being sold that idea that this channel is is a mouthpiece of the Congress, that the channel is the mouthpiece of Muslims, that the channel is mouthpiece of Naxal, that the channel is mouthpiece of people who want to break in there. Unfortunately, that idea has been successfully bought by Indians who I thought were who I think that were waiting for something like this. Who were waiting for a Times Now Republic to feel good about themselves that there is a, there is a platform that is speaking the language that they have wanted to speak. We have lost a generation. We have lost an entire generation in India to this idea of the other, to this idea of you know fake news, to this idea of our culture being the Hindu culture being more noble or more superior than other cultures. Despite the fact that India by itself is a syncretic culture, it's an amalgamation of various cultures. It has influences from all over, from all over its neighbors, whether it's Afghanistan, Pakistan. The entire RSS idea of Hindu hegemony, of Hindus being the the Aryan race being the purest form, I think that idea has been accepted, and that and Modi is validating it for the Indian middle class every day. So our news channels are just being reflective of it. I was nine when the Bombay riots happened, and we saw the Advani, we saw the hate speeches. I mean, I, we were too young to 
kind of grasp it but because it was so overwhelming that you know you 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 used to see leaders like Bajpayee and Advani and Balkapay as as these right wing extreme right wing leaders who's that we thought that okay once you see past that leadership you could perhaps have a generational change an aspirational india which could throw up a new leadership in in the bjp which could be more aspirational which could be little more liberal but then you see the likes of modi and and and, and, and adityanath and you wonder what a post modi bjp would look like i think i personally believe that modi and amit shah uh, his, his second in command amit shah are here to stay for another 10 years at least till 2024 and that's my personal belief but even after modi leaves he will leave india scarred used and if your if lynchings are your agenda if othering is your agenda and if you win again in 2019 then it will not be seen as a mandate for development which you have not been able to display for the country then it will be seen as an agenda for the othering that mr mr modi has done in the last 5 years so that will be seen as a mandate for hate for india and i shudder to think where will mr modi lead india from 2009 onwards um so if he's legitimizing terrorist terrorists who have killed muslims if he's legitimizing leaders who are giving hate speeches if he's legitimizing those who are lynching muslims if he's if he's changing syllabus and our history textbooks to to kind of erase the islamic culture or muslim culture from in, from our textbooks if he is if he is if he is bringing in a more arsicization of of in academia i'm wondering if this is what 2014 2019 was and if mr modi even gets a decent victory in this election let's not even let's not even get to an absolute majority uh it will be seen as a mandate for mr modi's hate policy and the india from 2019 onwards we won't be able to recover from the kind of erosion of secular values that india has often spoken about that we keep invoking the fact that you know india's world's largest democracy most secular democracy where there are you know where there are hundreds of languages of hundreds of newspapers and people live together peacefully and they coexist i think india will cease to be that country post 2019 that's the fear we have because mr modi in 2019 is not is not is not leading the country on aspirations and on development he's leading the country on the basis of fear the fear of the infiltrator which obliquely is based the indian muslim or the minorities or the christians so if if mr modi does win 2019 it's perilous times ahead for the country now in contrast to many other peoples indians have been full and active participants in the global academic discourse on their own history including in the west and that has been to a large extent the result of quality scholarship and training in its liberal arts universities But Audrey Trushke says that this is unlikely to remain the case in the future. She argues that the RSS and BJP have unleashed a systematic campaign against the humanities and higher education in India. And while this impacts how western scholars approach the study of India, in India itself the consequences are far more grave. With one of India's premier liberal arts universities, the Jawaharlal Nehru University or JNU, being a prime target of Hindutva ideologues. India uh, starting in the post independence era put a substantial amount of money and resources into cultivating their higher education and as a result they have been full participants in this sort of inter 
international community of scholars. Like Western universities for decades now have poached Indian scholars and brought them over to the U.S. and to places in Europe. And that system has worked precisely because Indian academics are every bit as good as, as their international counterparts. But that is changing now. And I think the primary reason that it's changing is because Hindu nationalists don't care about the past. They certainly don't care about scholarly ethics. They care about the past serving the needs of the present and providing them with a nice, clear-cut storyline that justifies present-day atrocities. That cuts to the very heart of what scholars what we believe and what we endorse. And in order to do that, because because Hindu nationalists can never get scholars on board with that project, the only way to deal with scholars is to get rid of us. And you are seeing that being done very aggressively in India right now with massive cuts and restrictions uh, to universities such as JNU in Delhi to the absurd rewriting of textbooks. You know, there's even a textbook in Rajasthan, one of the major uh, states in North India, that changes the battle of Haldikati. Uh, it just changes the outcome. Like it says that the loser won. It, you, you know, things are, have gotten to that absurd of a level. But yet we're seeing this sort of rewriting of textbooks and silencing of academics proceed at a, at a sort of shocking pace right now. Indian higher education has been decimated by five years of BJP-led rule from, from the central government in India. And if the BJP comes back to power in the current election, I think it's largely gone on the humanities side of things. Maybe the hard sciences are doing better, but the, the humanities, I think, are gone if we have five more years of BJP rule. If the BJP does not come back to power, I think there's still a pretty real question about whether Indian higher education in the humanities can recover. There's really been a multi-pronged attack on, on, on JNU. Um, you know, so the, the BJP has appointed a vice chancellor whose major qualification seems to be his contempt for humanities scholarship. They've denied professors the ability to accept prestigious grants. They've instituted a biometric system whereby professors and students have to check in and out at a central building on JNU's campus every morning and afternoon. That, of course, precludes any archival work elsewhere in the city of Delhi, much less outside of Delhi, where you could not do a biometric check in and out twice a day. They've cut graduate admissions to many of the humanities programs at JNU by two thirds, thus preventing the departments from recreating themselves and from training students. In terms of who's kind of the mastermind behind all of this, I mean, that that's a question that political scientists continue to debate, right? I mean, is the BJP really running India or is the RSS running India? Or is it even meaningful to distinguish those two in terms of Indian politics right now? I think that the academy has responded in a sort of shocking manner with, with self-censorship. One way to see this is to look at what graduate students are working on, right? Um, you know, for professors, many of us, you know, we sort of picked our, our set of topics a long time ago, but for graduate students, they have a choice of what to focus on. And it, it's a pretty common complaint right now among professors of South Asian studies based in the United States that their graduate students aren't doing anything interesting, right? It's, it's sort of, you know, a lame lineup of topics. In part, that's for practical reasons, right? You want to work on Hindu and Muslim encounters, right? Kiss your visa goodbye. You know, if you're an American citizen, you do need a research visa to conduct research in India. But I think beyond that, there is also a fear. People don't want to be targeted. I often have people say explicitly to me, Audrey, what you're doing is great, 
but I would never do it. I would never want to be in your position. I don't blame them for that. But what that translates to in terms of a restriction of scholarship is, is a problem. If things continue apace, as we've seen in the last five years, I think you are going to have an entire generation of Indians who don't know their own history. They know a mythology created for them by a particular you know, political idea ideology, but they won't know anything about their own history. So the new India envisioned by Narendra Modi and the RSS is a multi-frontal assault on the old India its institutions, its social composition, and its very history. The BJP and RSS aim to produce a new India based on a new history that strips out the undesirables. History, especially officially sanctioned history, is an exercise of power. It involves the determination of who and what matter. And in totalitarian societies, official history often determines who has a right to exist. Given India's history of religious violence and its worrisome trajectory, the erasure of Muslims in books may only be a first step to erasing the same group of people on ground.